right. Okay, well, it's good to have you here today. And uh, as you're grabbing your seats, we are making our way through the Gospel of John. And so we are in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles or your iDevices or whatever you're reading the Bible on, you might turn there. And uh, we're going to be there, I don't know, this week and next week as well. Uh, but a couple weeks ago was Easter. We took a little break from the Gospel of John and we looked at some of the other Gospels and their account of the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was a fun time together. Uh, but it was a really weird weekend for me. Um, I woke up on the Friday morning before Easter and uh, I had like a, some pain over on this side of my mouth and I thought, huh. So I, I, mouth pain is a bit of a trigger for me. Over the last 10 years, I've had several um, I'll call them dental events, uh, you know, where um, one of them involved an infection that came on so fast and so hard that it literally debilitated me. I couldn't do anything until I got to see the dentist on a Sunday and kind of had a little emergency meeting there and my wife served as the dental technician, which was really uh, fun. And they ended up doing some quick surgery and getting that taken care of. But that was possibly, I think, the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my whole life. And then a few years ago, I had a thing called a root canal and about halfway through the root canal the uh, anesthetic started to wear off and I basically felt everything that happened from that point on and so it mouth pain's like a trigger for me so when I woke up on Friday morning I was like uh, instantly like went to a really dark place and oh, oh no you know it's gonna be awful and, I, and then it went away a couple hours later so I was like okay you know maybe I slept on that side wrong or something and and so uh, that was great and then Saturday morning before Easter I woke up and it was back. And it was kind of back with a bit of a vengeance. And, and so I was just, I didn't know what to do. I thought, you know, tomorrow's Easter and, and, and I'm going to preach and I really want to do it. And I've been preparing for it. Um, I didn't really want to call the dentist. I, I didn't know what would happen. You know, it's that dentists work basically in a dungeon and there's all sorts of like instruments of torment there. And I just wasn't sure that I wanted to go there. And, and I thought, you know, I don't know what will happen. Maybe they'll put me on payments. That won't work uh, uh, for Sunday. Day and you know maybe they'll just start I had these pictures of digging in there and they're like oh we you know it's Saturday we gotta go home and and leave me like that for Sunday and coming to preach and so I decided I'm just not going to do anything I'm not calling the dentist nothing and I kind of went through Saturday Saturday was an awful day and then I came on Sunday morning and um, when I got here I was in a lot of pain from the tooth but that wasn't all um, there was more because that's not enough on Saturday in the afternoon my my wife looks at me and says what's you know what's going on with your eye and I'm like what and I look and apparently some blood vessels had uh, burst and my so my eye was just red my right eye where the white part was just red right like really ugly not like bloodshot but just completely red and so I thought well perfect that's like you know that'd be great for tomorrow and so and on Sunday on Easter Sunday if you saw me I was kind of avoiding like I was trying to talk to people from a distance because anytime anyone got within a few feet there was like ooh, what dude what's going on with your eye you know and I'm like I don't know it's just that kind of weekend you know so anyways uh that was a weird morning like I can hardly remember anything but I do remember coming I do remember being in a lot of pain I remember being up in my office 
and being on my knees and I was, I was praying as I usually do, just praying and telling God, God, I really need you today for these three services. These are, this is really one of the biggest weekends of the year and I'm in a really dark place here and I really need you. And you know what struck me was, it occurred to me like I actually didn't need the Lord any more than I need him on any Sunday, anytime I deliver the word. I'm, I'm completely and utterly dependent upon him and thankfully he is trustworthy and I don't remember a lot about those services but I remember getting through them preaching the word. I remember having conversations with people. I don't know what they were about. I went home on Sunday afternoon. We went to be with my wife's family. On Monday morning, just kind of give you the rest of the story, I called the dentist in the morning and he said, yeah, we can get you in. So I went in, they did some x-rays. They're like, yeah, that, that's ugly. Uh, you gotta go see the endodontist. So I called the endodontist and they were able, they had a cancellation, so they got me in on Tuesday. And I went in and they did some x-rays and said, that is a really sick tooth there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and um, so they did a root canal. It was painless. It was fine. It was great. But Sunday was a weird day. And, and, and there was this thing on Sunday I was thinking about. And something I've thought about for years. And that is, you know, we are, there are two parts to us. We are uh, physical. We have a body. But we are also spiritual. There's a part of us, a soul, a spirit. And there's these two things. And I've always thought and marveled about how they seem to interact. But I don't really understand, without getting into it, I don't understand uh, fully how the material and the immaterial interact and one impacts the other. But I know that they do. And the body can impact the state of the soul. But the soul can impact the state of the body. And I believe that the two are interconnected. And what I experienced on Sunday morning was, as I leaned on the Lord, being in God's will, I believed I was doing what God wanted me to do, what he made me for that morning. And I believe that God got me through that morning because my soul had an impact on my body. Even though my body was in pain, I believe that God worked through my soul to impact my body. And maybe you've experienced that as well. As we come to the story today, and look at uh, this story about Jesus and, and the Samaritan woman. We see some of that. We see the idea that we are both a soul spirit, but we also have a body. And when the soul spirit is doing what God has created it to do, it has an impact on the body. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive into that. Father God, I thank you for uh, this week. I thank you for the way that you have uh, sustained us, the way that you have blessed us, the way that you have been with us. And I pray now as we open your word and we think about this story, this amazing story of Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. I pray that you will open our eyes to see what it is that, that you have for us here today in the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So we are in the Gospel of John. And we, I think this is part 12 of uh, roughly 60, 65 messages that we'll have in here. And I wanted to kind of just do a really quick review. And uh, one of the things you might remember is that as we've kind of launched into John, there's no account of um, any, there's no angels announcing that Jesus is gonna be born to Mary. There's no uh, account of his birth. There's no shepherds, there's no manger scene. In John, you just kind of dive right into Jesus as an adult and doing ministry. And I think it was about five weeks ago Ago, we looked at uh, Jesus meeting with a guy named Nicodemus who came to him at night. You might remember that story. Great story. And then uh, the next week we looked at the passage where Jesus uh, goes out into the countryside in Judea and his disciples are baptizing and people are coming to him. And you might remember, I think shortly before Easter, we looked at the story of, of John the Baptist who was nearby baptizing. Jesus is, and his disciples are baptizing 
Actually, just his disciples were baptizing. And um, Jesus' ministry is getting larger and larger and John's is diminishing. And we have those kind of famous words of John, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, um, as we go forward, we don't find this in the gospel of John, but we find in the other gospels that John the Baptist is arrested and he's put in prison. And that's kind of where we are right now, knowing that this is going on um, and knowing that it is not the right time for Jesus to confront the uh, same people who uh, kind of were at, have been after him and kind of chased him out of the countryside. He decides to leave Judea and to travel up um, through Samaria and, and go up to Galilee. And it's interesting because what it, it tells us is that uh, in John 4, 3 and 4, uh, Scott covered last week, uh, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So we, we've talked about why that's significant. When it talks about him having to pass through Samaria, scholars kind of argue he, he had to because it was the easiest route or he had to because it was his purpose. In fact, what we know is that um, Jews, when they would have to travel from uh, Judea in the south to Galilee, we know this, they would never go through Samaria. They would never do that. Now, we'll talk a little bit about why that is, but typically what they would do is they would travel east and go along the Jordan River, which is kind of out of the way, and they travel up uh, what we call the King's Highway and kind of go around Samaria. They would take the extra time. Remember, it's not, you're not hopping in a car and driving a few miles. You're, you're walking this path. So they would walk around, or they would go to the west and go along the Mediterranean Sea and then come back up. The point is, they're not going to go through Samaria. And Scott talked a little bit about uh, last week about why that is, but the Jews considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds. I mean, that's kind of really what it all comes down to. And that kind of goes back to the time of the captivity. And there were some Jews who lived in the area who interbred with people who were not Jews. And so they were considered racially uh, not pure. They were religiously compromised. They were politically incorrect. And uh, so the Jews uh, would not associate with the Samaritans. In fact, um, they, they really hated the Samaritans. They avoided them at all costs. And they would not travel through Samaria. So for Jesus to travel through Samaria, and I kind of, we miss it today, but back then he would have been breaking multiple Jewish standards and customs. This is a, a radical thing to do, especially for a rabbi. So he goes to Samaria. And as Pastor Scott talked last week, you know, he stops at this well. It's the middle of the day. He's thirsty. Um, he's hungry. We, we know that because uh, disciples go into the local Safeway to get some snacks and, and he's tired. And while he's at the well, tired and hungry, he gets in this conversation with a, a Samaritan. So that's, that's radical enough. But not just a Samaritan, it's a Samaritan woman which is even more radical, and she's alone. And we know that she's alone at the well because she is socially, morally on the fringe of her society. And there's a couple of reasons specifically about what that means, which we won't get into. But she is on the fringe of society, and Jesus is there, and he's alone with her. And he starts a conversation with her. Remember, he asks her for some water and he doesn't have a bucket to get water out of the well. And she's kind of surprised that he's talking to her and then he pivots to talking about living water. And this is what Jesus does. He'll, he'll kind of take a physical thing and he'll give a spiritual illustration. And most of the time when he does it, people are scratching their heads. They don't know what he's talking about and then he has to explain it to them. And so she asks for the living water but she doesn't really understand what it is that he's offering. And so he says, hey, why don't you go get your husband 
and bring him back and we'll continue this conversation. And then she says, remember, she says, well, I don't have a husband. And, and he says, that's right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And now you've kind of given up on that. So you're just living with a guy. So he really calls her out. And her response is, well, you must be a prophet because you know this stuff about me. And then she mentions the Messiah, which transitions into Jesus saying, and that's me. I'm, I'm the Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one of God. And that's kind of where we left it last week. But what's interesting is, and I was sitting here last weekend listening to Pastor Scott preach, and I was thinking about this whole thing where the, at the beginning of the story, he's, he's tired and, and he's hungry, and at the end of the story, he's energized and he's, you know, just going, but he hasn't eaten anything, and he has, that we can tell, hasn't, hasn't had anything to drink. So what's going on here? What makes this big change in Jesus, even though he hasn't had a snack and a nap, which, you know, is often really a good plan. So I want to talk, and you'll notice the first thing I want to talk about this morning is just this idea of soul food, of this indispensable food for the soul. Remember, because we are soul, we are spirit, and we are body. We know how to feed the body, but how do we feed the soul? And verse 27 is where we're going to pick up the story today. Now, just then, as his disciples came back, right, so he's having this conversation with the woman, and she's about to leave and go back to her town and tell everyone. The disciples come back, and it says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Now, the word marveled there, the madzo in the Greek, there's a little debate what it means, but really at face value, it means to admire someone or to wonder at someone in a positive way. I think that's what's going on here. They, I think they just see what's happening and they, it's something in Jesus that is admirable because other people don't do that. He's talking to a Samaritan, which Jews don't do, to a Samaritan woman, which they don't do, to a moral outcast, and, and she's alone. Now, it's hard for us to understand why that's so radical. Leon uh, Morris, in his translation from rabbinical writings of that day, uh, gives us this quote. It says, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister, not even with his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. This was the way it worked in those days. And so Jesus is acting radically in this sense. And the disciples, it, it says here, basically, they have some questions, but they cannot get, as one writer said, they can't even mumble the questions. They can't believe what's happening. Specifically, John says they had two questions. One was of the woman, what do you want? So they're just looking at the woman, and their question is, what does she want from Jesus? And they have a question for Jesus, which is, why are you, why why are you talking to her? It just doesn't make any sense to them. What the disciples found admirable about Jesus, the religious leaders found offensive. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, it says this, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, you know, they, they mumbled, they grumbled among themselves. They said, this man receives sinners and he eats with them, right? They just, the thing that the disciples admired, the religious leaders found to be deplorable. J.C. Riley says this, and I think he puts it well. He says, we should consider nothing impossible and regard no sinner as beyond the reach of the grace of God. It's so well put. We should never write anyone off as long as they are alive in this life that God cannot reach them. Well, the story goes on in verse 28. It says, so the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and she said to the people there, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
And they went out of town and they were coming to him. So let, here's kind of where we are. She, she goes back to town. She tells everyone about Jesus. And now they're on their way. Meanwhile, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. She goes to get water. At the beginning of the story, she meets Jesus. Her whole focus, kind of paradigm, radically shifts from, from physical things, that is physical water, to, to Jesus, to living water. She, she forgets her water bottle. It's, it points out she just left it there by the well because she has to tell people in her town about Christ. And she describes him this way. He's a man who told me everything I ever did, which is obviously an exaggeration. Um, they didn't have that long to talk. But the point is, Jesus knew some things about her that he could possibly, he couldn't have known unless he has some kind of divine knowledge. Who knows? She thinks maybe he's even omniscient. And she becomes, if you will, an instant missionary, an, an instant witness. She hasn't heard a sermon on Oikos. She hasn't, you know, filled out the little chart. She hasn't had any training, hasn't been to a seminar, hasn't read any books on witnessing, hasn't become a member of a church yet. But she instantly begins to share about Jesus and her evangelism strategy sounds kind of familiar as we've been going through the book of John. She just says to them, come and see. Right, if that sounds familiar, it echoes the words of Jesus in chapter one when he talks and turns around and sees a couple guys following him and he says, what do you want? And they say, we want to see where you're staying. And he says, well, come and see. It reflects the words of Philip to Nathaniel when he says, well, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see for yourself. Notice she doesn't debate them. She doesn't attempt to convince them. She just tells them about Jesus, about what she knows, and she leaves the convincing up to Christ. She says, well, come and see. Come and see for yourself. And she asks the question, she says, can, can this be the, the Christ, the, the anointed one that God has, has told us he would send? Now, you don't really get this in the English, but in the Greek, the, the sense of the question assumes a negative answer. In other words, she's, she, she kind of goes to these people and you know, she's, a, she's a woman and she's kind of an outcast and she's lived a particular kind of life. She doesn't have a lot of moral authority. So she, she kind of just says to them like, hey, this guy can't be the Messiah, can he? I mean, he's saying some things and doing some stuff, but I, you know, I, 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 what do I know? I, what do you guys think? And the result is they decide, well, they're gonna go, let's go check it out. Let's, let's meet him for ourselves. As one writer says, and I love this, he says, she proves it's not the quality of the witness that ultimately matters, but the object of the witness, right? It's Christ himself. So going on in verse 31, it says, now meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. So when the disciples left Jesus, he was, he was tired and he was hungry and they went to the grocery store and they, they came back and they're urging him to have a sandwich. You know, like, you got, you got to eat something here. You're, we know you're the son of God, but you, you live in a body. You got to eat some food. To which he responds, he says, so I have food to eat that you do not know about. So Jesus is often making these statements, especially in this section of John where he says something and people have no idea what he's talking about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him some chicken nuggets, a happy meal? Did, did somebody bring something that we don't, we don't know about, right? So it, it's interesting, Greek, uh, in the Greek here, he says, I and you, and those words are emphatic. In other words, he says, I have something to eat that you do not have, but it's something that you need. And the disciples, of course, are like, what is he, you know, they're looking around for wrappers or anything. Do they have a Subway sandwich? What's going on? Jesus is using what we call parabolic language. He uses a physical thing to introduce the idea of a, of a spiritual thing. 
And here's what he's trying to tell them. Food is important, right? If, if you don't eat, you don't live. You got to eat. It's a necessity of life. We have to eat. Now, I know we're all a little bit different, and I was thinking this week, you know, I, so I got to eat. So on Fridays, I usually go and do just a little bit of grocery shopping. My wife does the main grocery shopping, but I do kind of for uh, the weekday. So my wife's in education. She works Monday through Friday, so I'm on my own for breakfast and lunch. And that's my job to kind of take care of that. On the weekends, she's home and we eat full meals. But otherwise, I eat like a meal a day during the week, kind of, maybe not kind of. So when I go to the store and I buy some stuff, so like this is what I do. I do, I do breakfast bars in the morning, so I don't have time for breakfast. I've heard it's the most important meal of the day. I'm not buying it. So I, I, I usually just get, I'm really old, so I get I don't just get breakfast bars, I get fiber bars. If I have to explain it, forget it. But um, I get these. So usually I just have one of these and I have a mocha. Now you can, you know, it's, it's only half-calf and you can mock me for that. But actually, if you've done your studies, this is considered the perfect post-workout food. Not that I work out in the morning, that's not my point, but I'm just trying, you know, in case I do someday. So this is kind of what I do in the morning and that's kind of it. And then I'll go until 12.30 so and then I'll lunch. Now for lunch, usually I'll have some um, Nusa lemon yogurt. If you've never had this, this stuff is the bomb, okay? This is really good. So I have some yogurt, it's not quite enough. So then I'll have some granola with it, all right? And this is like really good stuff. And then I also always have an orange. So oranges and I go way back and so I'll always have some orange in orange as well, and that's usually like my lunch. And then for dinner, you know, my wife's home and we have like a proper meal. Um, on the weekends, I'll always have a sandwich for lunch, so a little bread. And then like, I do like to snack a little bit every now and then, so uh, I'll always buy some ginger ale because that's my drink of choice. I like it. Uh, people are like, yeah, there's no real ginger in there. Yeah, I don't care. Um, and then I'll have like... Uh, so if you, you guys have baked lays? Okay, these are like, this is the perfect food right here. So I, the way I think about it is baking kind of uh, cancels out the salt and all that kind of stuff. That's the way it works. And then for dessert, you know, I make no apologies. I'm kind of, I, I like peeps. I think they're like the perfect dessert. It's just nothing but sugar. Why mess around with chocolate and all that kind of stuff? Just like eat sugar. So that's kind of what I do when I do my shopping. But here's my point, whether you eat like this, whether you eat um, a meal a day or three meals a day, or maybe you do second breakfast and 11s, 11s and all that kind of stuff, right? You have to eat. You have to eat. If you don't eat, you don't live. I was thinking, I, I was thinking like, is this going to be, yeah, okay, so you're going to look at the food for the rest of the time. Uh, Jesus' point is this, there's something more vital to your existence than this. There's something you need even more than food, more than a sandwich. He, in verse 34, he says this, my food is to do the will, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, here's what fuels me, to do the work that God sent me to do. In the Gospel of John, the word will and the word work are always uh, terms used for God's work of salvation when they're attached to Christ. What Jesus is saying is the Father's will and the Father's work are food to me. To reveal the Father to other people is like food to me. It fills me up, right? To connect people with God is like food to me. The cross, the cross, even with 
all that comes with it, he says, is the work of God, which is like food to him. On a spiritual level, right? Doing God's will, doing God's work is the only food that can feed the soul. Once we come to Christ, the only thing that feeds, that revitalizes the soul is to do the work of God. Now this is important because I've noticed, as maybe you have, over the years, that sometimes people use food to attempt to fill an empty soul, right? Maybe to deal with discouragement or loneliness or disappointment or lack of purpose, they, they turn to food or maybe something else physical in this world to try to fill up an empty soul. The point is, there is no physical food that can do that, right? Physical food cannot satisfy the soul. Doing God's work is food that gives the soul energy and health and vigor and, and sustenance. And you've, you've probably experienced this on a, on a physical level. I, I was thinking, um, like a month and a half ago, Mike and I were in Nicaragua, and uh, it, you know, it was hot, and um, sometimes, so I don't, I don't know about you, but if I, I haven't slept well the night before, and it's hot, and, and I'm tired, and we would go on these long drives to get somewhere to, to teach, and for me, just being on the, on the road, in a vehicle, and it's hot, and I'm tired, it's very difficult for me to even stay awake, you know, it's just like, there's, I'm just like drifting, and stuff, and then, but once we get where we're going, and we get out, and once I start teaching, and I was thinking like, I was thinking of this in particular, because it was hot, and I hadn't slept the night before, but once I got in the room and I was doing the work that God has, has willed for me to do, I find myself energized, and I find that my soul is impacting my, my body. In fact, there were two days where um, we, I taught all day, and Samuel would be uh, translating for me, and I would just teach and teach, and then they would like hand out lunch and everyone would be eating lunch, but I wouldn't eat lunch because I was teaching. That's really gross. And so I just, I would keep teaching and they would eat lunch and it didn't even bother me at all that they were eating and I wasn't because I believe what's going on is it's, it's more than just adrenaline or something like that. I believe that when we're doing the work of God, when we're doing what God has made us to do, it has an impact not only on our soul, but on our body because somehow we are interconnected. And maybe you've experienced that. I mean, maybe you've been serving other people with your gifts uh, or abilities. Maybe you were out this morning greeting people as they're coming in and maybe you didn't sleep well last night or maybe you didn't have breakfast and yet, you know, you were doing what God's designed you to do and you were with it. Maybe being on the worship team or maybe mowing your neighbor's lawn to show them the love of Christ. Jesus' work is to reveal God. His work was to draw people to the Father, to die for them, to rise for them, to save them by faith. It's what got him up in the morning. It's what energized his body when the day was long and he was tired and hadn't eaten. It's what satisfied his soul and it impacted his body as well. Again, think about this. When the story begins, he's kind of trying to get away from the religious leaders. There's, there's going to come a time for confrontation, but this is not that time. He goes on a long walk. He's dealing with needy disciples and crowds, and he's tired, and he's hungry, and he's at a well, and he meets this woman, and she needs God. She needs truth. She needs compassion, and, and his care for this needy soul just energizes him. It feeds his soul, but it impacts his body as well. Jesus isn't saying, Truly spiritual people don't need to eat. 
That, that's not what he's saying. We need food and water and sleep and exercise, but we are more than physical. We are more than that. We are spiritual. And there's a connection between the body and the soul. And when we are doing God's work, our soul is, is fed, but our body is impacted as well. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon this week that I love. He could, you know, he could hit you sometimes pretty hard when he was preaching. And I found this quote. Let me read this for you. He says, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, to church, to Bible readings, to prophetic conferences, and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you just roll up your sleeves for work, and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritually dyspeptics. Being idle, careless, with nothing to live for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, it is no wonder that you begin to groan inside, always looking inward until you are ready to die of despair. Like, that's a pretty harsh kind of, uh, yeah, some words there. I think in Ephesians 2, Paul puts it a little bit nicer. He says this to us. He, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so no one can, can boast. Paul says, you are saved by the grace of God. You are not saved by any good work, but I love the fact that he doesn't stop there, right? He goes on and he says this, for we are his workmanship, that is we are the work of God created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, right? So we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, we are saved to demonstrate the love of God and to, to vocalize the gospel to the world around us. God has saved you to do good works, to serve other people with your God-given abilities and resources, to show compassion, to tell other people about the gospel. And it is spiritual sustenance for your soul, but I would argue it is also good for the body. And so Jesus you know, kind of disclosed, he's, he's trying to tell his disciples about this, but they're not quite getting the whole picture. And then he goes on and he wants to explain to them that a clock is ticking, right? That, that, that this is a pressing matter. In verse 35, he says, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, commentators kind of disagree on what's going on here. Some think that he is quoting a first century proverb and some simply think that it's December when he says this and it's time to plant and in four months in April it will be time uh, to harvest. But the point is this. It's the attitude that says we've got time. We're not in a hurry. There's no urgency. We have months to slack off before it's time for the harvest. Now agriculturally, what he's saying is true. You plant and you have four months, but spiritually, that is not the case. That's not how it works. What Jesus says is, lift up your eyes and see. What are they supposed to see? 
Well, William Clink in his commentary has an interesting theory. He says, if you, if you follow the story, the woman has gone back uh, to the town. She's told the people about Jesus and they are coming to him. It's in the middle of the day. It's hot. So they would have been wearing white robes during that time. And they're coming. And Clink believes that what may be happening is Jesus knows that they're coming. Maybe they're cresting the hill of the road. They're just coming down. They're in their white robes. And Jesus is pointing to them on the horizon and saying, look, the harvest, the harvest is approaching. His point is this is the day. Jesus is saying that there needs to be a sense of urgency on our part, a sense of urgency which I think we often lack. I don't know how many of us came into church this morning going, man, the clock is ticking and and, and people are dying and we need to share the Lord with people. Why are we so often not urgent? Well, there's a lot of reasons possibly, maybe just distractions. You know, it's an odd thing, isn't it, that sometimes the very blessings of God become distractions for us, right? Maybe you just, maybe you have a lot to do. And maybe there's a lot of stuff you gotta watch on Netflix tonight or events to go to, maybe vacations to plan or, or hobbies to do. Or I think sometimes we just, we lack conviction regarding what the Bible says about judgment. We're just not sure we believe it. We're just not sure there is a hell. We're not sure there's judgment. We're like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you feel inadequate to share the gospel. I'm not really ready. Although, consider the Samaritan woman. Right? What does she know? Right? She just met Jesus. Maybe we're afraid of the response. It might cause some problems, maybe upset some people, or maybe we just don't care. I mean, maybe we just really don't care about the people around us who don't know the Lord. Jesus says, you gotta lift up your eyes. You, you gotta look at the people who are ready to know their creator. They're ready to know him today. In verse 36, he goes on and he says this, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. But I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have not entered into the labor. So let me just break this down. He's saying in in physical farming, it's not rocket science, this is the way it works. Somebody prepares the soil and they, they plant the seed. And then four months later, somebody comes along and they harvest the crop. And usually in that day, it was the same person. He's just saying in the spiritual world, people sow, that is they sow spiritual seeds. Maybe they they quote scripture to someone or they share the gospel with someone or they live it out, a piece of it in some way, right? Many of us do that. We're planting seeds here and there. We're, We're having spiritual conversations with people. We're showing them the love of Christ, And other people are harvesting. They come along and they get that opportunity of being part of the process of bringing people to Christ. But people have different roles to play. In 1 Corinthians 3, this is what Paul says. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul says, you know, I'd go from town to town and I'd share the gospel with people. And a lot of times I would, I would plant some seeds in a town and then I would leave and go to the next town and, I, and then maybe Apollos came and, and he would do some more teaching and kind of water the seed. And, and then at some point, you know, God would cause it to grow and someone else would come. And Paul's like, sometimes I just plant seeds, sometimes I harvest but oftentimes I don't get to do both. And Jesus talks here about reaping that for which you did not labor. So the disciples are about to take part in a harvest because the Samaritans are about to come and place their faith in Christ. And Jesus is just saying, right, that you're about to take part in a harvest that you did not sow. 
You, you did not tell these people the gospel. You did not plant any seeds in this place. Now, in one sense, there was a long succession of seeds that were being planted in that area. God had sent prophets. Um, godly people had come and sown uh, spiritual seed for centuries. And most recently, John the Baptist had been in the area sowing spiritually. And now the disciples would come in and, and they would get to harvest that which they did not sow. In fact, interestingly enough, John, who did a lot of spiritual sowing, is now in prison. And he won't be there when many of the Samaritans place their faith in Christ. Sometimes we may sow, but, but we may not reap. You know, I think of that, and I've shared this with you before, but I, I became a Christian when I was uh, 15 years old, and I, I grew up in a non-Christian family. And so for 40 years, I, I prayed for my sister. I have one sister. I prayed for her. Um, when I had opportunities, I would plant little seeds in her life through conversations, through texts, and, and this went on for 40 years. In fact, just a little while back, um, my sister got married right out of high school, had five kids. Her husband left her. She raised those kids, and when she'd raised those kids, she met a man, and she wanted to get married, and she called and said, you know, would, would you do the wedding? She lives down in California, and I, I said, you know what? I'd be more than happy to come down to the wedding. She wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. So I'll come down and do it, but here's the deal. We're going to get together and do a little counseling. I'm going to talk to you about the gospel and about the Bible because you know, that's, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. And uh, I'm your brother. That's what I'm going to do. And then when I do the wedding, uh, I'm going to talk about Jesus. And I'm going to read some Bible and I'm going to talk about the gospel. Now, if I can do that, then yeah. And she said, yeah, that would be fine. So I went down and I did some of that as well and got to plant some more. It was an amazing opportunity to share the gospel with people who probably hear the gospel once every decade or so. And so I got to plant a little bit of seed and then a few years later, uh, my sister came to the Lord and uh, I didn't get to pray with her when she placed her faith in Christ. I didn't get to go baptize her. I didn't get to be part of the harvest, but I was okay with that. Right? I was happy for the people who got to be part of the harvest. I got to do some of the planting, and that's kind of the way it goes. Jesus says sometimes we plant, and sometimes we harvest. Right? But, but both demand urgency, because lives are at stake, and people have a limited amount of time to respond to the gospel. In verse 39, it tells us, goes on, and it says, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony when she said he told me everything that I, I did. It says some people believed because of what the woman shared with them. God used the words of this woman to spur faith and other people. That's an amazing thought when you really think about it. But the next few verses tell us there's even more to the story in verse 40. So, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So I, I love this. The Samaritans are not putting her down. They're not putting down her testimony. In fact, what they're doing is they're confirming her testimony. They said, we heard your words. We know you. We weren't so sure. You know, and so we went and we listened to him. And sure enough, it turns out that what you said about him is absolutely true. But again, as one writer said, a successful witness becomes secondary to the words of Jesus in the gospel, which is what's happening here. I mean, when we share our faith with someone and, and, and they come to Christ, they place their faith in Christ, ultimately what we want them to do is place their faith in the words of Christ himself, not in our words about Christ. And that's what's happening here. And they call him the savior of the world. 
And this is important, right? Jesus and the gospel are not just for a certain racial group or a social group or a particular political party or it's not just for good people, right? It's, it's for everyone. It's an invitation for everyone to come and see and to believe and to have their sins forgiven and to become a, a child of God. The gospel's for you. The gospel's for your family, it's for your coworkers, but it's also for the people you don't like. It's also for the people who have different skin color, speak a different language, or people you avoid. It's also for people who don't vote like you, or eat like you, or talk like you, or live near you. This is the gospel. Jesus says, lift up your eyes. We need to get moving. And so I want to just kind of wrap this up by giving you really quick some harvest principles just kind of pulled out from what we just talked about. The first is this, right? Every one of us need to embrace the calling that God has given to us. As believers, God has given every one of us what we call a great commission. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation, to everyone. This is not just for apostles. This is not just for pastors or mature believers. Think about it. The Samaritan woman wasn't a, a spiritually mature person at all, but she immediately jumps in to telling other people about Christ. God has given every single one of us a great commission. Every one of us need to own it. Every one of us need to embrace it. Here's the second thing. We need to be those who check our priorities. So my guess is you're a busy person. You're probably an important person. You probably have a lot of responsibilities. You probably walked into church today with a to-do list and you're like, let's get church done with and I gotta get going and, and get some chores done. Maybe you're tired. Right, maybe it's a season of life right now and you're tired. I talk to people all the time. We're like, it's been really busy. It's been really crazy. I just need some me time and you should make sure that you take care of yourself and you got projects to do, but that wasn't Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus didn't wait until he was rested and fed, until he had a nap and a snack, right? He just reached out according to the needs of other people, according to their schedules. And this is a pattern that we'll see in Jesus' life. There are times we're gonna see when he's like, man, I gotta, I gotta get away, and he'll try to get away, but everyone will follow him, and he'll say, all right, forget it. I'm just gonna minister to you guys on your schedule and your time. And he is an example for us and for our life. So we need to stop waiting for the perfect time, and we need to start responding as God gives us opportunities. Check your priorities. Number three, you need to get out there. This is simple, but you notice in the story, Jesus didn't wait for the Samaritan woman to come to him. She would have never come to him. He went to where she was. So let me just ask you this. Who do you need to go to? Who is it that's maybe never gonna come to you and ask you any spiritual questions, so you need to go to them? Maybe they'll be sitting at the dinner table today, right? Maybe they live next door. Maybe they go to school with you or they work with you. Maybe it's a... Uh, in someone else's home or at the gym or, you know, maybe, maybe you need to go to another country like Nicaragua. Who is it? What name is God bringing to your heart right now? Someone who is not going to come to you and ask you spiritual questions. You need to go to them. The Gospel of John is just this record of Jesus going from, from one person to the next person to the next person. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. Number four, eschew man-made barriers. So I don't know why I use this word. I'm using it right. It sounds French, doesn't it? Eschew, but it means to avoid. But I've never put it in an outline before. I'm getting old. I'll probably never have another chance. So eschew man-made barriers, all right? In other words, cast them off. 
right? He notices about Jesus. So for you, it might be socially unacceptable to talk about Jesus somewhere, maybe your home, maybe at work, maybe at school, right? Or maybe Christians might not understand if they see you talking to certain people or, or see you in certain places talking to certain people. But I love how Jesus just casts that aside and says, nope, I'm going to where they are. Now with that being said, don't be foolish, all right, don't, don't, don't be stupid. I was reading an article the other day that Portland has more strip clubs per capita than anywhere else in the United States. I would not suggest going there. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, all right, don't let your fear of what other people might think of you when they see you talking to a certain person in a certain place, don't let that stop you from going to the harvest. Number five, we're almost done here. Enlarge your team. So you might notice that uh, as the disciples come, they're always working as a team. They don't have to do this alone, and neither do you. Right? You can reach out on the harvest. If, if you're married, you can reach out together as a family. You can do it if you're in a grow group. You could do that together as a group or as part of a gateway outreach. But I want to encourage you to enlarge your team. Let me also encourage you to think of one particular way to enlarge your team. And that is to support people who are going where you cannot go. I mean, we can't go everywhere in the world, but there are people that we support who are taking the gospel to other parts of the world. And you can support them. We call them missionaries. Uh, you can go to our website and you can see some of our missionaries. I don't have space to show all of them here. But you can go there and look and see some of the missionaries that we support and where they are in the world. And you can support them online through Gateway and our budget. Or if you're not sure how to do that, just ask someone in the office and they'll tell you how to do that. But think about it. When you support missionaries, it's a way of becoming part of a team in other parts of the world. And so you really are being a part of that. And here's the last one. Just remember who does the saving, right? The Samaritan woman could tell people about Jesus and she could tell them about what he said, but she couldn't make anyone believe. None of us can do that. She did her part. She pointed people to Jesus and she trusted Jesus to do the rest. And guess what? He did. And he still does. The harvest priority. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for our time in this passage and I, I just, I love how these passages are not that big, but there's just so much here for us. And Father, I just pray for every one of us right now. Every one of us have been, we have been called into the Great Commission. And there are people to whom you are setting up divine appointments who need to hear about your son. People who need seeds of the gospel sown. And there are times, Father, when you will, your will will be for us to come along and be part of the harvest. I pray for every one of us in this room and, and online that this will be more than an idea, that it will become a part of our life. We will engage in the work that you have for us and in doing so, our very souls will be fed and sustained. And our bodies will experience that as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen.